It happens, it happens too often in my marriage, and I'm not proud of it. It's something I have to keep working on, and, and I will. But you can talk to my wife, Martha, and she'll verify this. It's one of the ongoing issues in our relationship, and I need to correct this. I am not a good listener. For example, something will happen, and I'll act surprised, and I'll turn to Martha and say, what's this all about? And she will very gently say, don't you remember? I told you about this a couple weeks ago. Weren't you listening? And if I'm honest, I'll have to say, well, you know, now that you say something, you know, I do remember you mentioning something about that. So in that sense, I heard you, but no. When you brought that subject up, I really wasn't paying attention. I didn't let that fact or that piece of information really sink in. I didn't mark it down on my calendar. I didn't factor it into my plans over the next couple of weeks. When you were talking about this, I just kind of let that item go in one ear and out the other. Yeah, now that you mention it, I, I do remember you saying something about it, but you know what? At the time, I just didn't take your words seriously. I really wasn't listening. And sadly, what I do with my wife, I do also with God. See, I, I can really identify with this piece of news that came out of Chicago back in 1999. The headlines read, Jesus Kidnapped. I mean, for three days, they had round-the-clock coverage and all the TV news. The baby Jesus is missing. Even the mayor of the city was upset and made a special plea on the 6 o'clock news. If you're the one who took him, please bring him back. And he had the police commissioner standing there at his side, assuring all the citizens of Chicago that a complete investigation will be made into this crime. We're going to find him one way or another. And sure enough, three days later, the missing child was found buried in a locker at the bus depot there in downtown Chicago. Now, here's what they were all so concerned about. Down there, in the, right there in the heart of Chicago, sitting, in the, sitting there at the Daily Plaza, Every year at Christmas time, they have this very impressive nativity scene. I mean, giant, lifelike statues, hand-carved, sent to the city from the nation of Italy. It was a gift from Italy to the city of Chicago. So this is not your normal nativity. This is something very special. And yet, back in 1999, somebody came along in the middle of the night, grabbed that six-pound statue, the baby Jesus, took him out of the wooden cradle, snatched him away. And for three days, the baby Jesus was missing. For three days... The people of Chicago were just in a state of alarm because their Jesus, their Jesus, had been kidnapped. I can understand why they might have been upset, but you know what? There's something that bothers me a whole lot more. Every year, especially at Christmas time, the very time when it shouldn't happen, I allow the busyness of this season to kidnap Jesus from my heart. Does it happen to you? You know, here we are. Let's admit it, every one of us, we got schedules that are already overcrowded and overbooked as it is, but now at this time of the year, all of these other activities and expectations are now piled on top, and life gets really crazy. Got all these programs at church and at school where you want to go see the kids and the grandkids before, I mean, you want to do that. Got to be there for them. And then there's all the Christmas parties at work and in the neighborhood, and then all the extra shopping you've got to do at this time of year to get all those gifts for all those people who are secretly expecting something really special from you, and the pressure's on. And then there's all that added pressure at work with the end-of-year reports that have got to be finished and complete, the deadlines and all the evaluations taking place. And if you're a student in high school or college, you're prepping for the finals, and now finally at last sitting down to actually write the essays and the term papers that have to be finished and turned in. And at this time of year, it just seems like the, the pressure upon us becomes immense. 
and in the busyness of running here, there, and yonder, trying to meet all those demands and live up to all those expectations, it's easy to forget about Jesus and to let him be kidnapped from your heart. That's one of the reasons why we're having this sermon series, God with us. Did, did you know that's the most fe- frequent promise made in the Bible? Of all the wonderful things that are said here in this book, there's the promise of forgiveness, the promise of life after death. I mean, there's all kinds of amazing things that God promises to do for us. But the one promise that's mentioned more than any others, I mean, God just keeps talking about it again and again and again. He just keeps repeating, and know this, and I will be with you. (laughs) And yet that seems to be the one promise that we just kind of ignore or take for granted or we just don't appreciate it like we should happens in the Bible too. Have you noticed that? Like back in the book of Genesis, you read about Jacob. Here he is. He's running away from home late at night. He's got nothing but a stone for a pillow. So he lays down to go to sleep. And while he's sleeping, he has this dream, this magnificent dream. And in the dream, he sees a ladder that's reaching all the way to heaven. And on this ladder, all kinds of angels ascending and descending. It's a picture of grace, how God is still reaching out to this man, this man, Jacob, who right now is nothing but a villain. Just cheated his brother out of a blessing. Just lied to his father. Just ripped that family in two. And instead of sticking around and finding a way to resolve the problem, hey, let's get everybody reconciled. No, he just runs away. Leaves all the others to deal with the mess that he has made. And yet here is God, the scoundrel, the sinner. Yet here is God still. I mean, here while Jacob is running away from everybody else, God's not about to run away from him. Here while Jacob is forgetting everybody else, God is not about to forget him. God still reaching out to a man like this and doing it in such a beautiful and memorable way with this extraordinary dream. So the next day, Jacob wakes up and he begins to realize that he hasn't just been sleeping physically, he's been asleep spiritually too. Here he is out in the middle of nowhere and he makes this remarkable statement, the Lord is in this place and I didn't even know it. The Lord is here and I wasn't even aware of it. Now think about this. He's a Jewish man who's been raised in a Jewish home ever since he was a little boy. Isaac, Rebecca, his dad, his mom, they've been talking all the time to him about the Lord. Every day he's been surrounded by this godly teaching, surrounded by this godly training, surrounded by all this godly influence. And yet somehow, someway, this very selfish man, through the years, he's allowed the Lord to be kidnapped from his heart. Or you come over to the New Testament and you take a look at Mary, uh, Mary Magdalene. You know, one of the first ladies to get to the tomb of Jesus, she's come here to honor the graveside of Jesus, and yet when she gets there, she notices how the stone has been rolled away, so immediately she assumes the body's been stolen. And yet here's the irony, there's Jesus standing right in front of her, and she didn't recognize him. I mean, at first she just thinks he's the gardener, some local landscape guy who's here to keep everything in the cemetery clean. Here's the Lord Jesus standing there right in front of her, and she can't see it. The Lord is here. She's not even aware of it. Or you remember what happened to Martha? You read about in Luke chapter 10. The Bible says, and Martha opened her home to Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? And Martha opened her home to Jesus. Wow, Jesus and 12 disciples, they're going to be spending the next couple days in her house. What a privilege. What a blessing. Man, you can't get any closer than this. Jesus living under the same roof with you. Isn't that wonderful? And yet, you know what happens. We see it all the time. You see at the restaurant, you take your family out for dinner, and while you're there, you notice this couple sitting at the table, and you can just sense it. 
I mean, though they're both sitting at the same table, yet the two of them are so distant. I mean, physically, only inches apart, and yet mentally and emotionally, those two are living on a different planet. I mean, physically close, and yet romantically, they're a thousand miles apart. Same thing happens to Martha. Here's Martha in her home. Her sister Mary's sitting out there in the other room, sitting at the feet of Jesus, and while he's talking, because of this conversation, she's getting closer and closer to him. And yet at the same time, here's Martha just a few feet away, just the next room away, and yet spiritually, she's drifting further and further away from the Lord. Why? The Bible says, Luke chapter 10, she was distracted. Now get that. She's not breaking one of the Ten Commandments. She's not gossiping with her neighbors. She's not wasting hours sitting on a couch watching the Home Shopping Network, ordering a ton of stuff with somebody else's credit card. No, she's not sinning. She, I mean, she's out here in the kitchen actually doing something good, something worthwhile. She's doing something very constructive. She is preparing a meal for Jesus and his friends. Just like us at Christmas time, after busy shopping for all these gifts because these are the people we love and care about and we want to do something special for them. And in the midst of all that, we're still teaching Sunday school and leading our home Bible studies and reading devotions every night for our children. I mean, here at this time of year, we're busy helping everybody else to notice Jesus. And yet we're not taking time ourselves to see him for ourselves. Hey, I'll get around to that, but I got to attend to all this other stuff. For, just like Martha, we're distracted. Hey, is the meat cooked long enough? Are the potatoes going to be ready in time? Because of all the preparations she has to make, because all she has to do to get this meal ready, the Bible says she begins to worry and get upset. Now think about that. She's not being defiant. She's not being rebellious. Just got distracted. So picture the scene. Look at this house. You've got these two sisters living together in the same house. And they're, right now, they're living in the same house with Jesus. And yet these two sisters are in two different rooms, two totally different places. One is really enjoying the presence of the Lord, and yet the other is becoming more and more distant. The Lord is in this place. And yet right now, because Martha's got her things on other minds, she's not even aware of it. The Lord Jesus is sitting there right there in her home. And yet at this particular moment, he's been kidnapped from her heart. Maybe that's why God keeps repeating this promise in the Bible. Again and again, and he says, hey, don't forget, you're not alone. You're not in this by yourself. Please realize I am here with you. Steve Jobs is one of the greatest innovators of all time. He was a creator of Apple and all those wonderful toys they make. But here's what's interesting. He had this standing rule in his home. No devices at the dinner table. Isn't that something? Here's the guy who created the iPad and the iPhone, but you can't bring that to my dinner table. Every night when he'd come home to eat supper with his wife and his three kids, all books and newspapers had to be set aside, the TVs turned off, all devices, all technology left behind in another room. Why? This is family time. Meaning this is a time for us to look each other in the eye and talk. I mean, actually talk. This is a time for us to get engaged and appreciate what we have here as a family. This is a time when we make time to enjoy our relationships. Isn't it true? We find time uh, to, to make time for what is most important to us. Sooner or later, we all hit the wall and we realize sometimes in a very painful way, you can't do everything. You can't. Nobody can. You can't do everything. You can only do some things. And some things are absolutely essential. And in order to keep them essential, you have to make time for them. Isn't that exactly what we see Mary, the mother of Jesus, doing in Luke chapter 2? Here it is at the end of a long day. She's just given birth to Jesus. The, a bunch of shepherds have dropped by for an unexpected visit. 
I mean, it's been a very busy, very hectic day, a very eventful day. And you got to think to yourself, at the end of this day, Mary just has to be exhausted. And yet, while everybody else goes to sleep, the Bible tells us, Luke chapter 2, Mary chooses to stay awake, not just physically, but to stay awake spiritually. Luke 2.19, and Mary began to treasure up all these things. Hey, let me take a step back for a moment. What just happened here? God was at work. What does that mean for me? What does that mean for my family? What does that mean for our future? And the Bible says, and she began to ponder all these things in her heart. Hey, this baby that I'm holding in my arms, this is Emmanuel. God with us. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that amazing? In other words, here is Mary making time to enjoy and appreciate the presence of the Lord. I want us to do the same thing today, and I want to do it through this uh, strange passage of Scripture. I mean, Matthew chapter 1, here we have this long list of ancient Hebrew names. How do you find God in a Scripture like this? And how, how could a Scripture like this, what, what, what could a Scripture like this possibly teach us about God being with us? Let's take a look. I'm going to start with verse 17. Matthew, after he lays out the family tree, he gives us all these names. Now, verse 17, he begins to make a comment. Hey, I want to tell you why I start off the book this way. You might think this is kind of odd, but it isn't. Because this is more than just a list of names. I'm telling you a story here. Did you catch it? So he says, verse 17, he said, did you notice the pattern? Did you notice there was a planet work here? Did you notice there was a thread tying all these names together? Did you catch it? There's a code here. Let me point it out to you. I said, did you notice there were 14 generations from the time of Abraham to the time of David? And then did you notice in that second column, that second section I gave you, again, 14. There were 14 generations from the time of David to the time of the exile when Israel was taken out of their land, carried away from their home, carried 700 miles away to the land of Babylon. And then did you notice in that third section, 14 again. There were 14 generations from the time of the exile to the time when the Messiah arrived, when the baby Jesus was born. 14, 14, 14. Matthew's showing us that this, this, this family tree, it wasn't just kind of thrown together at random. No, it was carefully arranged, carefully constructed, because he wants to share a testimony. Now, here's why this is important. Sometimes, maybe this isn't true for you, but it is for me. Sometimes I read this list and it begins to bother me. Because I compare this list to the list, other lists that I find in the Bible, like Luke. It's same genealogy, and yet I begin to notice how Matthew skipped over a bunch of names. Well, why did he leave them out? For example, the very end of verse 12, we have this name Zerubbabel. And from the time of Zerubbabel in verse 12, when you get down to verse 16, to the time of Joseph, the stepfather of Jesus, Matthew's got nine names listed there. But I go over to Luke chapter 3, and I look at the same genealogy, Jesus's. And between the time of Zerubbabel and the time of Joseph, he's got 18 names there. He's left out more than nine names. Why? And then I, the same thing happens at the end of verse 8. He says, and Jehoram was the father of Uzziah. So I go back to the Old Testament to check that out. And guess what? Jehoram really wasn't the father of Uzziah. He was the great-great-grandfather of Uzziah. Matthew skipped three whole generations. What's going on? Is he, is he trying to hide something? No, no. Nothing sneaky or shady going on. In fact, he's doing the very opposite. He has deliberately left those names out. He's arranged things because he wants to reveal something to us. If you were a, first, if you were a Jewish person living in the first century, you'd get this. You know that many times, especially in genealogies, you come across that expression, the father of. 
Sometimes that means he's actually the father of this particular person, but other times that expression, the father of, literally means the ancestor of. You can use that phrase either way. And if you're a Jewish person, you understand that. You know Matthew's not doing anything deceitful here. And then you'd also appreciate this. You know that when Matthew leaves a bunch of names out of the genealogy, that's not unusual. Many Jews of that day and time did the same thing. Why? Because their genealogies were like their resumes. You know, today we want to get our foot in the door. We're hoping to get hired on at this job. And so we got to introduce ourselves to those people and let them know, hey, you ought to hire me. So we'll hand them a resume. And on that resume, we'll list all the degrees we've earned. Here's the education I have. Here's one of the reasons why I feel like I'm qualified to do this job. And on that resume, we'll list all the places we've been working and the kind of experience we've had and what we were able to accomplish at those different job sites. We're trying to put our best foot forward so we, we can make a good impression upon others. Well, back in the ancient world, when you wanted to impress other people, you did it with your genealogy. What really resonated with the people of that day and time is who you've been connected to. So when you handed them a resume, you handed them, here's my pedigree, here's my family line. And in the interest of time, just so you don't get lost in all the details, rather than list all the actual names on the family tree, I'm just going to kind of condense this for you and, and highlight the really important people on the list so you can see I have come from some really good bloodlines. In other words, in the ancient world, if you want to know who somebody is, you had to know who they've been connected to, who's taught them, who's trained them, who's been an influence on them. I am who I am because of my relationships. You want to understand my story, what has shaped me and defined me and made me into the person that I am today? Look at where I came from. Take a look at my family. In other words, every Jewish person knew a genealogy is more than just a list of names. Somebody's telling a story. You see this back in the Old Testament too. Let me give you one example. The very end of the book of Ruth, you have the family tree of King David. But what's intriguing about that list is you start to look at it and you begin to factor up all the numbers and you realize that genealogy is covering more, covering more than 700 years of history. And yet we've only got 10 names listed. 700 years of history and only 10 generations. Well, man, those two figures do not add up. I mean, there's obviously been more than 10 generations of people living during that 700-year period of time. What, what's going on? Well, back in the days of Ruth, all of the kings from all of the places, and we know this because historians and archaeologists have uncovered all kinds of documents from places like ancient Assyria and ancient Sumer, other places like that. Whenever, whenever a king would publish his family tree, he would only list 10 generations, only 10. There's always, obviously, more than that. He just put 10. So you get to the end of the book of Ruth, and the writer of the book of Ruth, as he's writing out this family tree, he's saying, hey, hint, hint, uh, I'm trying to tell you something. Do you get this? Did you notice? Only 10 names here. This is no ordinary family tree. This is the genealogy of somebody very special. Heads up. This is the genealogy of the greatest king that Israel has ever had, King David. In other words, I'm not just listing data here. I'm not just listing facts and names. I'm telling you something important. Same thing we have in, in Matthew. That's why verse 17, he keeps going on. This, Did you notice how I, how I arranged, how I put all this together? 14, 14, 14. What's he telling us? Well, let's go a little bit deeper. Let's come back to verse 1 of Matthew chapter 1. It says, this is the genealogy. If you were reading this in the Greek text, it, it, it literally says, ha biblios, ha genesios. This is the book of Genesis. You know, the book of Genesis, the very first book in the Bible. Genesis means beginnings. That's what the first book of the Bible is all about. It's all about beginnings. Well, here's Matthew, the first book in the New Testament. And he says, I want you to know one of the reasons why I'm writing this book. I'm telling you the story of how every one of us here can experience a new beginning. 
And it's all because of Jesus and what he's done for us. Now that's something to get excited about. So this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, aren't you curious? Why did he put David before Abraham? I mean, we know historically Abraham lived hundreds of years before David ever arrived in the scene. Why David first and then Abraham? Well, here are the two most prominent people in this whole family tree. The two most famous, the two most well-known. You have Abraham, the ideal Jew, the father of the nation. You have David, the ideal king, the greatest king that Israel has ever had. And yet here's Matthew saying, I'm, I'm deliberately catching your attention because every Jew would notice this. Whoa, wait a minute. It should be son of Abraham, son of David, son of David, son of Abraham. Matthew's saying something. Hey, out of all these names here through this family tree, I want to show you something important about Jesus. And I want to do this by this, this way. I'm going to open this door. As we're working our way through this family tree, I want you to keep David in the back of your mind. And you'll notice as you read through this family tree, he keeps mentioning his name. And not just and David, he'll say, and King David. And then here's another way he does that, that number 14. See, back in the ancient world, every Jew not only had a name, they had a number. In Hebrew, you'd have a Hebrew name, and, you, and you'd realize that in that name, each consonant had a numerical value to it. For example, the name David, D-A-V-I-D. We'll take out the vowels. You just have the consonants, D-V-D. Each consonant would have a, a number to it. For example, D, which in the Hebrew alphabet is Daleth. It's the fourth letter, so it has a numerical value of four. And then we would have V, but in the Hebrew it's Wow. That's the sixth letter. It would have a numerical value of six. And then you have another D, another Daleth, another four. Four, six, four. Add them up. What do you got? 14. Matthew says, you notice how I lined this all up? 14, 14, 14. Dawid, Dawid, Dawid. David, David, David. King, King, King. See, Matthew is writing this gospel to Jewish Christians. And one group that's kind of skeptical about, is Jesus really the one? Matthew's saying, oh yeah, he is. Hey, get this. I'm a fellow Jew. For the longest time, we always thought that David was our greatest king. Not so. He is simply the ancestor, the greatest king who's ever lived. Jesus. And why is Jesus so much greater than David? Because when David went out and conquered nations, he did so with a, a sword and an army. But Jesus is going to conquer the entire universe, and he's going to do it with a cross and the grace of God. When David went out to fight his battles, yeah, he won, but that meant everybody on the other side ended up losing. But Jesus, when he fights the greatest battle of all, the battle against sin, when he wins now, everybody else can win too. And when Jesus wins, he wins for all eternity. You see, this genealogy is a story about Jesus and what he can do for us. Now, let's take it one step deeper. One of the key things you need to notice about this family tree, you go back to the Old Testament and you actually read about these people. Every name on this list. Go back there and see what these people were really like. And you know what you're going to discover? Horribly flawed. Every one of them. David, Abraham, uh, take Abraham. One of the most prominent people in this list. Take Abraham. Great man, right? Father of the nation. Go back to the book of Genesis and read a story. And what do you discover? For 75 years, he was a pagan man living in a pagan land. He was a Gentile long before he became a Jew. The father of the nation. For 75 years, he was living outside of the covenant. No connection to God at all. And he would have stayed that way had not God brought him in. And Abraham's story is the story of everybody else in this list. Had not God stepped in, had not God intervened, there wouldn't have been any hope for any person on this list. Now, what has all this got to do with the presence of God? Here's what I draw from it. 
Isn't it true that the one thing that will kidnap our desire from wanting to get close to the Lord, the one thing that will kidnap our confidence in God is when we fail. Hey, I know you told me a hundred times, God's goods, God's gracious. I get that. But you don't know me. You haven't heard my story. You don't know what I've done. If you knew how horribly I have failed and how frequently I have failed, you would know God doesn't want to have anything to do with me. It's not so. And here's the proof. Here's the evidence. Nobody more horribly failed than the people on this list. Nobody failed more frequently than the people in these lists. God never gave up on them. That means God is not about to give up on you. One last thing. Did you know there's only one time in the Bible when you see God in a hurry? Only one time in all of Scripture where you see God actually running. It's Luke chapter 15. And why is he in such a hurry? He's in a hurry to forgive. It's the parable of the prodigal son. He's the father in that parable. I mean, here's the prodigal son. He just stepped out of the pig pen, still covered with the stench and the shame of his sin. Here's the kid who squandered his entire inheritance. He has lost it all. Right now, he's a complete and total failure. And yet, how does God react? He comes running out to meet him. He comes running out just to be with him. He comes, he's in a hurry to hug him and hold him and express his love. And why? So he can pat him on the back and say, hey, at least you tried. No. He's not there to endorse his sin. He is there to put a new robe on him and a new ring on his finger to give him a new status and a new standing. He is there to bring him back home and give him a new life to live. That's Matthew chapter 1. This is not our story. You know the story of us and how we desire to be with the Lord? No. This is God's story. He's the hero here. This is the story of God and how He desires to be with us sinners, losers, failures. He wants to join our family tree so He can save us and set us free from our sin. Think about it. Only one time in all the Bible when God's in a hurry. And what is He in a hurry to do? He's in a hurry to forgive. Trust me. He is still in a hurry to do that for you and do that for me. So the question is, will you let Him Will you, I mean, God is here right now. Do you realize that? He is here right now. And you know why he's here? Because he wants to connect. But will you let him? Will you today, right now, will you really let God be with you? Let's pray.